Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Marshall Young. For those of you I haven't met, I'm the Vice Principal of Green Templeton, and it's my pleasure to introduce this evening's lecture. As most of you will have realised, this term, the series has been focusing on the pharmaceutical industry. The first lecture looked at the history of the pharmaceutical industry. The second looked at the relationship of the pharmaceutical industry, or big pharma, as some people call it, to uh, government and uh, regulation. And tonight we're moving on to look at how uh, some of the main players in the industry juggle the potential conflicts between the medical, the ethical and the business dimensions of the, of the uh, activity they're in. And uh, now, again, for those of you who haven't been before, the format is I will introduce our main speaker who will lead off the discussion and then... Uh, after about 45 minutes, I will we'll then break and we'll get a respondent and then we'll go to question and answer. And I've, I've promised the two speakers that if the question and answer are going on too long, I won't stop them, but I'll suggest we go to the common room where we can actually see some of this wonderful sunlight that uh, we can't see down here. But uh, we're very pleased and delighted that tonight... Sorry, I seem to have upset your... your display... Um, the, uh, we've got uh, Patrick Valance, Dr. Patrick Valance, who, as you can see from the slide, is head of drug discovery from at Glaxo um, Smith Klein. Now, P Patrick had a, a distinguished career as an academic at UCL, where he was there for t uh, ten years, and has got uh, lots of uh, very distinguished medical connections. But at uh, Smith Klein, he is head of this head of um, drug discovery, and. That really is the uh, start point on which he will give his talk on, if you like, the uh, GSK perspective on how you balance the healthcare needs and innovation in drug discovery. Because GSK, I think, feel quite strongly that it is not, in fact, impossible to both sort of generate the rewards that you need to fund the discovery um, and the expensive innovation process that's required on the one hand and the need for general dissemination of drugs on ethical grounds on the other. And I think he will explore some of their thinking on that. Patrick, thank you. Thanks, thanks very much. And, and thank you, actually, for bothering to come in on a very lovely summer's evening into a hot uh, lecture theatre to hear this. I, I, want to, I want to talk about something... Uh, that's very specific for discovery, and that is how you choose where to invest in a discovery organisation. Because fundamentally, that drives the whole business. And what we do in discovery are the medicines in 15 years' time, 20 years' time. And so if you don't get that bit right, you end up with something wrong in 15 years' time. And I want to discuss that in relation to healthcare needs. And I'll start with this quote from our chief executive, and I'm not going to read it, but I will pick out two things that I think are important in a statement from a chief executive. The first is, he said, we've got no absolute God-given right to exist as, a, as an industry. And secondly, that we must meet the expectations of society. And if you look at the reputation of the pharmaceutical industry, it is not great at the moment. In fact, it's often coupled when people talk with the tobacco industry, with the firearms industry. And you do wonder, how did the healthcare industry get itself into a position where it's coupled with the tobacco industry? And I think 
one of the things that's happened, and again Andrew Whitty has been clear about this, is that we had a contract with society, and the contract went something like this. You can make medicines to make people better. You can charge large sums of money for those medicines because the money will come back into research. You will continue to make more medicines. You will continue to improve health, and therefore the profits are used to improve the health of society. And frankly, what the industry has failed to do over the last 15 years or so is to live up to their part of the bargain. In other words, I think the industry has continued to make very substantial profits and has failed to deliver what society expected in terms of the benefit. That's not to say nothing's happened, and I'm going to be clear about what has happened, but I think there is a feeling that somehow more should have been done. And that's the the area that that, that I think we need to focus on, we need to face up to, and we need to be realistic about what we can do to readjust that balance. So so let me continue that theme of being in, in in a bad position in terms of reputation at the moment. Public trust is low in the pharmaceutical industry, and you can see from this... Um, uh, DTI Mori survey, survey, and I accept all the confu- difficulties about asking questions about trust and so on, but you can see that uh, the industry is right down the bottom there. And I can look at this, uh, this and, and, and think about the reputation of industry, and then I think about what happened to me very abruptly overnight three years ago, which is I swapped from being a, a, a source of science that the general public had nearly up there with general practitioners. I was a scientist working for the university, and I'm now right down the bottom as a scientist working for industry. I'm just above religious organisations as, <laughs> as, as, as a source of information on science. So you will want to bear that in mind as I speak. So we're in a bad position. Public trust is low. But let me, let me just take another, another angle on this. I do believe very strongly that in the past 20 years, modern drugs have completely revolutionised the practice of medicine. More so than almost any... In fact, more so than anything else, I think, in medicine. And and I'll give you some examples. I think it is absolutely extraordinary that AIDS went from a disease that had no diagnosis, really, to one that had a treatment in a remarkably short period of time. It's changed from being a death sentence, a rather abrupt death sentence, into being a chronic disease. Childhood leukaemia is now treatable. Hypertension is treatable. Much of diabetes is treatable. And these, these changes actually are, are fundamental to the way medicines practice, fundamental to the way doctors behave, fundamental to the way we think of our rights as patients. And the unmet need still remains very great. So anyone who thinks that the job is nearly done, of course, that's far from true. We still make relatively minor impact on most cancers. We still really don't know how to treat uh, many aspects of common diseases like atherosclerosis. And, of course, there are many, many diseases which we don't do anything for in terms of really effective treatments. We rely on very old medicines and we rely on rather empirical treatments. So there's still a very large unmet need. There's also, and I think this is important, a very high bar for making a new medicine. And I'll, I'll speak a bit about the process of making a medicine, but the bar is high even when you've made one. And the bar is high first because if you think about what you have to do, you have to prove it's better than something else, and that something else may be a, a, an existing effective drug, and you need to do it in a short period of time. He's also got a problem about placebo. Placebo responses in clinical trials are often bigger than you might expect and can confound the effect of a medicine, a point I'll come back to. There are changing expectations throughout society. I think all of us tolerate 
illness less well. In other words, we want things to be treated. So there is a demand for medicines, which is very different from the one that was present uh, 20 or 30 years ago. But there's also a demand for safety. There's a demand for absolute safety. And you cannot get an effective medicine that's absolutely safe. It's not possible. The systems you interfere with in the body inevitably carry some risk with them. And as you carry that risk, people are less and less tolerant of that risk. And the regulatory environment now is very, very tough and is actually leading to very long timelines for getting new medicines out. And we can talk about whether that's a good or a bad thing, but it's undoubtedly increasing cost and delaying time. The cost of medicines is an issue for any healthcare system in the world, including now in the US, where it's a big issue. And there's a public health agenda, of course, around how can we make sure that the new medicines we choose to pay for, and I think this is an important change, which actually the UK led on, and many of you would have been to Mike Rawlins' lecture, I'm sure. The systems like NICE that start saying, we'll tell you what we're prepared to pay for, what we think offers a real advantage, rather than you telling us as the industry, I think has changed the dynamic. It said, innovation is something that the purchaser of medicine defines, not something that the maker of a medicine defines and tells you what it is. So there is a change dynamic, which I think is important, because I think the effect of that is to drive innovation even further into the pipeline in drug companies, or it should be. Because if you're not innovative, you're not going to win. So I think there's a lot of good come out of the way payers have rethought what it is they want to spend their money on. But I want to start, first of all, before we get into some of the uh, issues around, uh, around uh, uh, drug discovery in particular, to give you an example. And the example I want to give is of a disease called Fabry's disease. And this is not one of our medicines I'm going to talk about. It's um, one from Genzyme, I think. But Fabry's disease is, is a very unpleasant disease. And it, it, it's because I know one of the things that pharmaceutical industry gets accused of is making up diseases, right? This is not a made-up disease. This is a genetic disease. You can define exactly what's wrong. It's real. And it's, due to, it's caused by a lack of an enzyme. So you lack an enzyme, a, um, a Substance builds up in the tissues, which causes all sorts of unpleasant things. It's a very unpleasant disease, untreatable. Pain throughout the body, problems with skin rashes, problems with the heart, kidney, and these patients die, die early. So a treatment was made, which was to replace that enzyme. So it's not the usual drug treatment. It's actually a, a protein given back. It's an enzyme replacement. It absolutely replaces the defect in this disease. And that replaced enzyme works. We know it chews up the thing that's causing the problem. So then you do a clinical trial, and this is the effect. And it's pretty dramatic. So here's the pain, various pain scores at the baseline of the trial and at week 20. So an untreatable disease previously. Give the enzyme back. Tremendous effects. Total pain scores. These are the statistical values, the p-values. I think... Each of us could look at that and say that is a dramatic effect, a dramatic improvement. The problem is that's the placebo and that's the active. <laughs> so here you have a disease that couldn't be more real with a treatment that couldn't be more specific and you can't show it works. And yet it clearly does work. And so there is an issue here about how you demonstrate what work means in a clinical trial. I think that's an important uh, consideration in terms of stimulating innovation and in new medicines. So let's come back to this, uh, this question of, uh, of, of making medicines. And I want to now talk a little bit about what it really involves in terms of a process. So here's, here's a sort of broad outline of making a medicine. And so if you read at the top, it takes at least 10 years from the time you have an idea. 
as to what it is you think is the target you want to go for for the medicine. It takes at least 10 years to make a medicine, and it costs roughly a billion dollars. And if you look at this graph, what, what this is saying is that for one approved new medicine, at the beginning of the pipeline, you're working on hundreds of projects, and you're working on many thousand different compounds. So most people in the pharmaceutical industry who are working at this end, the discovery end, have not been involved with a project that's made it this way. Most people have actually been on things that have failed for some reason. They failed because the hypothesis was wrong. They failed because the safety didn't work out. They failed because they just couldn't get the right chemical. There are all sorts of reasons why a project fails. But what you can see is that there is a huge attrition as you move from the start of a project up to the launch of a medicine. And this very long timeline, this very expensive process, and this huge failure rate earlier on can drive strange behaviours, one, and it also is a problem for the industry as a whole. We've got the wrong shape of a pipeline, and this is something that I'm going to drive as a, as a theme, that innovation is important, and then reducing the failure rate later is important. And that's a, that's a sort of theoretical graph, and just to show you what this really means in practice, this is the overall R&D productivity. So this is the spend in the red line, which you can see has gone up from 1992 to 2007 pretty dramatically, and this essentially is the success rate. Right? So across industry worldwide, the number of new medicines per year is going down, and the cost to make a new medicine has gone up. There's something wrong. Now, this is, I love this slide because Lehman Brothers, of course, were predicting all sorts of things, except they failed to predict one very, very important thing. <laughs> But they, they knew. This, is, this was one slide that, that they used, which is, and, and it's slightly, slightly, slightly worrying that they predicted us to have the best line, pipeline in the business. But, but they said you've got the best pipeline in the business, the fullest, the most likely to be successful, which is a great position to be in, except when you really read what this graph says, and it says that our pipeline can renew 60% of our sales. So we're back to the same situation that the price and the uh, nature of the sales is outstripping the ability to replenish the pipeline and do something new with it. And if that's true for us, of course, it's more true for everyone else. So there is this fundamental problem in the industry of productivity and of innovation. So coming back to, uh, to this, uh, the aim that I think we have to have is to drive much more novel thinking here and to be much more rigorous when we come into the clinic to be able to make a decision to say what really works and what doesn't work. And those are easy things to say and they're incredibly difficult things to drive through into a pipeline. So I want to go in now to some areas that, 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 that might address that. So very simply... It seems to me that if you look back over the past 30, 40 years, there has been a huge increase in scientific discoveries in biomedicine. There's been huge investment worldwide in biomedicine. There are lots of publications, lots of discoveries. I think initially there was an increase in new medicines that followed that. I think there was a, a golden era when people saw new things happening and they were able to translate it into medicines. And I think where we are now is that there is an innovation gap 
there's a gap between the discoveries that are being made and the ability to turn those into practical medicines. And I don't accept the argument, oh, well, it was easy then, that was all low-hanging fruit. I mean, it may look like that in retrospect, but I don't think for a moment it was low-hanging fruit at the time. I think we have a fundamental problem as to how we fail to capitalise upon the increase in, in science to turn it into new medicines. So that's the downside. The upside is that this explosion of um, scientific discovery, of opportunity, should translate into an opportunity for drug discovery if you can understand how to do it properly. And I will come back and to tie this into healthcare needs shortly, but you, you'll see at the moment that the, 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 the concern I have is that we are not capitalising upon the discoveries that are made. So one of the things that I think has, has gone wrong in the industry is a belief, and it does link to some extent to, I think, a commercially driven view of R&D, the belief that it's an industrial process. That actually, if you have the genome and you have big capabilities for producing millions of molecules and you have robotic screening and you put all that together, you'll come up with drugs and then you've just got to test them. Now, that's, a, of course, a gross oversimplification and nobody really thought that, but there, there was an, a, an era particularly in the 1990s, I think, when people really thought you could industrialise this process and you would dramatically increase productivity. And that turns out not to be the case. Now, the technologies are tremendously important underpinning technologies for the pharmaceutical industry, but fundamentally it's about scientific judgement. Fundamentally, it always was about scientific judgement. It's about individuals and teams making choices about where they choose to work constructing the skill set around there and being creative in their approach to the problem because there is no one way of doing this. If any of us knew how to do this, there wouldn't be the attrition I've shown you, there wouldn't be the problem in industry. It's a fundamentally scientific problem that requires judgment, insight and intelligence applied to the problem. So reintroducing scientific judgment, which may seem very obvious, is actually, I think, a big challenge for the industry. The second is that... Pharmaceutical companies tended to be extremely large, they are extremely large now, and centrally managed. And again, one of the problems with central control of these things is A, that puts a very big-scale commercial view on what it is you should be doing, and B, it tends to drive creativity out of the system. I had drug discovery at GSK. There's no way... I can head every single program at GSK. There's no way I know more than the scientists at GSK. I don't. The more I sit here trying to tell them what to do, the less likely they are to be able to make a medicine. And so we've gone for a very decentralised system, and you don't need to worry about the, the letters. We've gone for, for very small units, smaller actually than the ones depicted here, of maybe the smallest being 10, the largest being about 60 or 70 people, integrated teams of chemists, biologists, drug uh, metabolism experts, clinician scientists, who take a problem, a disease, an area of science where we think there's an opportunity, own that part of the pipeline and are empowered to get on and deliver it. And I think that's fundamentally important in terms of addressing some of the innovation gap. The second thing is that it's extraordinarily arrogant and naive to assume that within the four walls of a very big company you can discover everything and you have the repository of knowledge 
that you need. You, of course you don't. And one of the, the other things that we've done, and I think many companies are doing this, is to say we should do more of our drug discovery outside. We should partner with academia. We should partner with biotech. We should allow biotech to do things their way, and we should have an option to get that in. So diversifying how you do the business of making drugs is tremendously important. And so we're in a system now where the individual who owns that bit of the pipeline can spend money outside GSK, inside GSK, wherever they need to spend it in order to access the science, the creativity, and the drug discovery expertise you need in order to make a medicine. And we'll accept indeed encourage the idea that biotechs and sometimes academia, more likely biotechs, can be given the task of making a medicine. We can let them get on with it. We don't have to tell them how to do it. If we knew how to do it, we wouldn't have the problem. We know a bit how to do it. They might do it differently. So I think this move from central control to decentralised control is very important and, and, and is a trend, I think, across industry. I think even with the mega merger of Pfizer and Wyeth, it was very interesting after that their chief executive essentially described a system rather similar to ours of decentralising. Now to the meat. So how do you decide where to invest in drug discovery? And, and I drew this slide soon after I joined the organisation as a very naive academic, um, and I was trying to think, well, how do you decide where you're going to place your money? And it seemed to me, and it still seems to me, that there are a number of drivers. There are internal drivers. Where you're already good, you probably want to keep some of that going. In other words, there's something about longitudinal knowledge, institutional knowledge, which is important. And there's something about organisational structure that fixes some of what you want to achieve. And then there are external drivers. There is, of course, the size of the market you're shooting for. A lot of people will tell you inside industry how big the market is. Like all predictions, those predictions are pretty inaccurate, but you'll, you'll get that information. There's patient need, and I think we need to be clear that patient need, and th this to me was something of an eye-opener. Actually, I'm not sure that, that doctors are necessarily very good at understanding patient needs. I think patients are very good at understanding patient needs, and I think, I think we need to be clear about what we mean by that. But the, the, the bit which I'm going to come back to is scientific opportunity. And, and I'll come back in just a minute and explain um, why, why I think that's important. So those are, those are the sorts of drivers. And I'll give you some examples so you can see, see the sorts of things that people might look at. So here's an assessment of what the pharmaceutical market is. And in red, I've put cardiovascular disease. You say, that's fantastic. You can make masses of money on a cardi cardiovascular drug. It's a great big market. And then you look at it and say, well, what's growing... So this is now looking at growth of a market against it. And you can see cardiovascular is not growing. Oh, maybe I shouldn't work in cardiovascular after all. It's not growing. Those are the sorts of things that people look at. I do want to pick out one thing on this slide, though, which I think is important because it illustrates a point. Look at anti... Well, you probably can't see it, but I, I'm going to point out anti-infectives, particularly antibacterials. A reasonable-sized market, zero growth. Why is there zero growth in antibacterials when we all know we need antibacterials. There's good science. There's definitely unmet patient need. There doesn't seem to be a market. And this, I think, you can... You, so you could be driven by the market and say, I'm not going to make antibacterials, or you could take a somewhat more pragmatic, common-sense approach and say, I can make antibiotics. I know patients need them. There's something wrong with that market that we need to work out why people aren't buying them. The reason, of course, is that, is that if you're paying for medicines, you actually do not want to pay for a new antibiotic up until the time all your old ones have stopped working. 
So there's no market up until the time everything else has stopped working. So there's no incentive to go out and make an antibiotic. So there are some market things that need to be looked at. And the second area, just to touch on, is public funding. And we don't live in isolation. We have to be part of a broader scientific community. And these plots are from um, uh, UK's CRC when it's set up. And they're trying to understand where does money go from public funders in terms of academic research. And, and again, you won't be able to read it. But on the left hand, this is British Heart Foundation on this side. And this is Cancer Research UK. And you can do the same for all sorts of other funders. And what it's really saying is, is the bigger the blob on the left side, the more money is going into basic discovery. And at this end, you've got health services research. So you've got clinical research somewhere in the middle there. And what you can see is that um, in cardiovascular, there's been a lot of money gone into basic research and rather little gone into translation. And in cancer, there's been a much greater investment in clinical research and the ability to translate into something that you can measure in the clinic. Now, there, there are reasons for that which may not all be to, to, to do with the way the funders choose to do it. It's something to do with the disease and the accessibility. But you can see, I think, that if you're a pharmaceutical company and you really want to understand whether something works in the clinic, which you do, and you want to understand it early, you're more likely to come across groups that can help you in cancer than you can in cardiovascular. So that there is something about the investment that takes place outside industry that creates an environment in which drug discovery becomes either easier or more difficult. So let's come back to this three drivers. And I want to argue that market size has driven the behaviour of the pharmaceutical industry for too long. Market size coupled with industrialisation drove down a particular path. You can wish for anything you want. I mean, it's not difficult to imagine that there would be a good market if you could cure Alzheimer's disease. I mean, I think any of us could guess that. Yet the science tells you that's some way off. <clears throat> we don't really understand enough about the disease. We know that there's a big market for schizophrenia drugs. We don't really understand what the scientific opportunity is. We don't understand enough about the disease to say there's a whole wealth of opportunities there. Cancer, again, is an example. The huge increase in the ability to make new cancer medicines, and there are many, many good cancer medicines coming through pipelines all over the world now, is in part because the disease could be understood better. There are targets which are validated from the biology that you begin to understand. There are things you can measure in the patient that link that back to the biology. So the scientific opportunity has to drive decision-making. Otherwise, you end up wishing for something, knowing there's a patient need, but having no idea how to get there, and ending up really trying to find that needle in the haystack with no clues along the way, masses of money going in, and poor success rates. If, on the other hand, you drive it from scientific opportunity and say, where do I think the most likely areas are where I can make new medicines, it changes the thinking. You start asking the question then, well, if I've got this scientific, scientific opportunity, can I match that to patient need? And you start coming up with diseases, or indeed parts of diseases, that people hadn't previously thought of. So we're now increasingly being driven by science and saying, Therefore, we're going to be treating a number of smaller diseases, much smaller markets, not the blockbuster model. We can have a big impact in a small disease. And actually, that's good for patients. It's, it will create a market of some sort. 
and it's actually tractable in terms of being a scientific problem. So I believe there will be a swing. I mean, certainly we're doing this, and I'm sure others will have to, to drive what you, where you invest in drug discovery from a much sharper analysis of what the scientific opportunity is. And I was thinking on the way here, actually, you can almost put two of these together... And, and, at any one time and see where you're going to go. So scientific opportunity with a big market size, you like that a lot because there's bound to be a patient need. You can put together scientific opportunity and patient need, I think there's bound to be a market. You may have to work to understand what that market is, but there will be a market of some sort. Scientific, market size and patient need, it's sort of wishful thinking if you don't know how to make the medicine. And so I think there's a fundamental rethink about how you decide where to invest, and that's the process that we've gone through. And I don't want to get into details, but to put that together, what we've gone to is small teams given a budget based on the scientific opportunity to go away and make their medicines, not to be centralised with us saying, do it exactly like this, not to be driven by a very rigid so-called target product profile that something tells you exactly what to make, but to be driven by the science to work... So these are small discovery groups of... I say between 10 and 50, 60 people, most of them around 50 or 60 people, who pick off an area, like, for example, in one of these working on pattern recognition receptors, the things that tell a cell danger is present, which are almost certainly very important in a number of autoimmune diseases, a number of common uh, 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 problems that are difficult to treat. Give them the remit, give them the money, let them get on with it, and don't allow them to become driven too much by the commercial here and now because they're making medicines for 15 or 20 years' time. They have to be given that latitude to get on. And I think de-industrialise the process is a key message. (coughs) The other point is that we can't do that inside on our own. So that if I look at our structure we have now, we have 35 of these small units We have 35 partners outside, just as it happens at the moment. And some of them are biotech, some of them are universities, um, and uh, all of them are geared towards drug discovery. Now, the reason for showing this is that another problem that I think Big Pharma has had is it's tried to drive across a very broad front very slowly. It's tried to do everything. And I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone in this room, if you're going to want to be really good at something, you want to be really good at it. You don't want to be sort of half good at 20 things. And so I think making choices about where we wanted to work and partnering with companies that were really good at what they did is a way of broadening the scope without losing the depth. And that's the strategy that we followed. And so we've got collaborations around particular areas, including uh, anti-infectives, including cell signaling pathways and so on, which allow us to get into areas that we cannot be expert in but we want to be in. So to, to, to conclude that bit, and then there's one other thing that I want to, want to get onto at the end. To conclude that, the, the drive for meeting healthcare needs and what pharmaceutical companies do, I think, is fundamentally driven by a need to have the pipeline built around science linked to patient need. It has to be extremely innovative at this end. If you're not innovative here, if you're not doing something really new there, you're not going to be doing something new there, and you'll lose. So it has to be new. You have to make hard decisions here about what what things go into the clinic and how you're going to measure them and we need to change the shape of that pipeline. 
One other word about that. I've been, in my previous life, a very harsh critic of Me Too drugs, and I still am, actually. I think there's a limit to how many members of a class you want. I can tell you that absolutely nothing that we're doing starts off as a Me Too here. Even with the focus on innovation and science, I'm not sure that we're not going to end up with a Me Too there. And that's another part of the problem. You, can't, you don't know what everyone else is up to, and you don't know how quickly they're going to get there. Now, I, I, want, to, I want to turn now to, to, to a slightly different area for the last five or ten minutes. This is um, uh, something I'm not going to spend much time on. It's called the Access to Medicines Index. And, and again, it's really just to say that, that, that GSK has been concerned for a while about the issue of how you get access to medicine worldwide. It's not the topic of the talk tonight, but it leads into a theme. And I don't know how they compile this data, but you can see it's really rating companies on, on, on the different, in the different areas in terms of how much they help gain broad access to medicines. But Andrew Whitty has uh, declared four things that he wants to see us do in um, the most neglected diseases. And when I came into industry, I had a conversation with the chairman of R&D and indeed uh, with others in the company. And the chairman of R&D and I and Andrew Whitty, the chief executive, are absolutely on the same page uh, on this. And that is, I don't think it's credible to work for a pharmaceutical company and say my mission is to improve health and then say, by the way, I'm not going to do anything on the diseases that kill most people because they don't make any money. Uh, it's just not a credible position to, to take. And also, there are very few diseases that we work on that you can cure, very few. Infectious diseases are some that you can cure. So there is an issue around how you do that. So the things that Andrew said we, we'll do, and, and, and there's one area, because I, I had discovery, so there's one bit I want to focus on. But he said we will reduce the prices, and we've done that actually for a long time in sub-Saharan Africa. The AIDS drugs are all available at, at, at a price which just reflects the cost of producing them. But we'll reduce the prices to, I think the ceiling is, and I can't remember the exact numbers and things as being recorded, I better be careful, but I mean, there's a ceiling which I think is 25%. It's never going to be more than 25% of the cost in developed countries, in those most, in the least developed countries, and we're going to try and keep the prices down lower to increase access. The second is to try and stimulate research and drug discovery in neglected diseases, we've started a patent pool. So we're putting all of our patents into a pool and said, you can access them. You can access them as long as you're accessing them to make medicines for neglected diseases. The third is to do with infrastructure in countries, putting some money back into healthcare infrastructure. But the fourth one that I want to focus on is we have a drug discovery activity in diseases of the developing world. We have a unit in Tres Cantos outside Madrid that focuses on malaria, TB and currently leishmaniasis. And that unit is, is the biggest uh, drug discovery unit in, the, in, in those diseases. I think Novartis have got quite a big one in Singapore as well, but none of the other companies really have done anything substantial there. And we've got a group of, uh, of 120 scientists working on, uh, on, on those diseases who access all of the high-throughput screening, all of the uh, facilities of GSK to make new medicines. And we have many partners, including Gates Foundation, uh, Medicines for Malaria Venture, and so on. And our aim, and Andrew has, has spelled this out as, a, as, a, as an ambition, which is terrific, and, and we're, we're working on how to do it now, and I'll be interested in your reactions to some of this. We want to double the size of what we do there. We want to 
dramatically increase the output, and we want to open it up to the outside world. So we have done this in partnership. You can see that. But I I still don't think we do enough. So we're going to um, open the doors of that unit to allow scientists from academic groups and others to come and join us to help make medicines. In the longer term, we may have a bigger vision of creating a campus for disease in the developing world there. But at the moment, we're going to open up our doors, create some lab space, invite scientists in. And we hope to do that in collaboration with our partners um, uh, that I mentioned, uh, the various charity funders and others. The second point, which I think is something that we're just thinking about, it's new, we haven't worked out how to do it, but I'm absolutely determined we should do it, is to change the model of drug discovery there so that we put our results onto a website almost as soon as we get them, which is, of course, what people did with the genome sequencing, very open uh, situation. It's never been done in drug discovery. We'd like to try that in Trescantos, in malaria, in TB, resistant TB and leishmaniasis, to start saying, OK, you can join us in this venture of trying to make a medicine. We'll put our results out there. You can put your results on the website we can pool the patents and make them freely available. There's an imperative to try and get some medicines out of here. We can help do that with the facilities and the know-how we've got, but we can't do it alone. So we're going to try to go to something we're calling Disease the Developing World Open Lab, something that's going to be a real opportunity for people to access what we're doing and to partner with us in making medicines. And, and the reason for raising that is not just that I think it's a terrific thing that we're going to do for Disease the Developing World, but I'm interested in how that model works. I think it begins to hit at questions of openness in drug discovery and how much you can afford to be open in the process and how much you need to protect in terms of your intellectual property. Clearly, we need to protect things. Clearly, we need to make money. Clearly, we need to make the money to go back from the, from the, from the diseases of the Western world, not from these diseases. There's no profit in that for us. But the question is, can that model teach us something about scientific collaboration which leads to more... Uh, effective, innovative drug discovery. I've got no idea whether that's the case. We're just getting off the ground. I'm just sharing with you some of the ideas that we're, we're proposing around that, which will take some time to come into being. So I, I will stop there and say innovation is the key to this. Drive from the science and the patient need. There is a shift occurring, and I think it's a shift which ultimately will lead to many more medicines coming out for uh, rather different diseases in terms of of where we choose to target our, our efforts. Thank you for your attention. Perhaps I should just explain, I'm not trying to impress you by carrying my computer around, it's just my printer packed up at about three o'clock, so uh, my uh, sort of notes are there. Well, th thank you very much for uh, that, that. I'm sure there'll be questions, but I, true to the format, I'd like to now move on to the um, respondent, who is uh, Philip Bloomer, some of you may know him, who is the director of Ox Oxfam's, I get this right, campaigns and policy division. And if I try and encapsulate that, they're really trying to make sure when the world is looking at some of the major problems like climate change, economic problems, or health care, then if you like, the interests of the poor are properly represented and properly defended. So those outcomes you know, are, are, are sort of to their benefit as much as anybody else's. Well, he's obviously had... Um, a number of uh, sort of uh, issues to do with healthcare that he's worked on, but uh, uh, perhaps we could just ask you for your reply. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, it's always bad news as a campaigner when a company that you've been working on trying to sh shift them actually do shift in the end because now you've got to go and find somebody else. So, but, <laughs> but hats off to GSK for what they have done, and I'll come th uh, through to a more analysis about what GSK have done and what their announcements are um, and what our view is as Oxfam of them um, in, a, in a little while. But let me just start by saying a few words about the broader issue of healthcare. Um, as somebody who was the um, head of our campaigning on access to medicines, we were often accused by GSK but by many others of why are you so concerned about intellectual property when we know that there's so many other uh, things that really are so much more important uh, for healthcare uh, of poor people. And so from our point of view, of course, that's absolutely right. And that's why Oxfam works on a whole range of campaigning issues that relate to healthcare. I mean, a child dies every three seconds from poverty in this world. That's every three seconds. And we live in, we are the first generation on this planet that have the wealth and the technology for that not to be the reality of people's lives, of mothers' lives, of fathers' lives, of brothers' and sisters' lives, to see their families uh, disappear. And, of course, those people, those children, for instance, are not are dying from malnutrition, from malaria, from TB, from often, and usually from diarrhoea. And the issue for us is, of course, to deal with that in a more holistic fashion. So we have a, um, we face a world of obscene inequality and of, and of mass poverty. And we have to deal with that world and try and find the best ways in which we can make a difference. And that's why Oxfam campaigns, first of all, on the whole issue of uh, aid and debt relief to try and make sure that there's a real flow of money into the least developed countries so that, so that those governments who simply do not have enough money to be able to provide even their basic health care, which would be around $17 per person per year, I'll repeat that figure, $17 per person per year for a very, very basic health care, but that is not available and not possible for some of those least developed countries because their coffers don't, uh, uh, don't admit it. So we need that aid and we need that debt relief. But equally, we know that many developing countries could be putting far more into their health and education. And so again, we are campaigning with many organisations around the world and particularly with, with uh, partners in poor countries to make sure that there is real accountability of governments. They're held to account for the amount of the public purse that they're putting into health and education, the two primary means by which you're going to get a healthy workforce and an educated <laughs> workforce that are going to be the preconditions to development. But we also work and have consistently worked on the issue that's uh, the, the one for tonight, which is how do pharmaceutical companies contribute to that uh, health care that's necessary for the great majority of people on this planet who live on less than $2 a day. And that's uh, and essentially from our perspective, this is about challenging those companies and the regulations that guide the actions of those companies, but making sure that those companies are capable of marrying their, their, their their legitimate commercial interests to make money, to make a profit, to make the market work, with also their ethical responsibilities. And, um, 
And we heard just now about that social contract which is made in society, a license to operate in our society. And of course, increasingly, that license to operate is not just a license to operate in terms of what a company does in Britain for Britons. It's also a matter of, a, with globalisation, has come the sense that there's a social contract for companies in how they operate globally and not just in a particular, uh, a particular national market. So, from our, from our perspective, this issue of, of how those companies operate in many ways can be reduced to three words, access to medicines. So, in terms of that access to medicines, the first issue is availability for poor people. For, does, the med does the medicine exist that is necessary for those, for those poor people? And Patrick's spoken about the neglected diseases and the fact that those are genuinely neglected diseases. There has not been investment in them. We'll come to that in a minute. But also, are they distributed to where they are needed? And again, many companies, many pharmaceutical companies, segment their markets and say, how can we make the biggest profit in this market? I know, we'll sell to the elite because that way we can sell it with the intellectual property attached and we can make much more money than actually selling it to a large number of people at a much lower price. We'll still be able to make money at that lower price, but not as much. And so it's better to segment the market and sell, and sell to a, a, an elite, knowing that that denies the availability of those drugs to poor people. But also, is it available in the formulations that are required for developing countries? Um, the second issue around the access to medicines is, of course, the affordability. So it may be available, but is it actually affordable? Uh, so if it exists, does it exist at the price that, people, uh, that, that a patient or the provider in terms of a public health uh, care can actually afford to uh, make it available to poor people? Um, as we've also heard from Patrick, there, there are changing disease patterns for uh, poor countries. Many poor countries face now a triple disease burden of new and re-emerging diseases. So TB is currently killing two, billion, two million people per year um, because of the uh, increasing um, or, or the rising resistance. The old diseases, the respiratory tract diseases, the, uh, the uh, diarrhoea, which are the mass killers, the weapons of mass destruction, if you like, of this, uh, of this planet. And also the non-communicable diseases, which are also on the rise in many uh, developing countries. And in fact, cancer and diabetes and other non-communicable diseases now make up 40% of the uh, cause of death in, in developing countries. So we need the medicines for all three. Um, and while public health, while the Per, while the budget of public health in developing countries is increasing, it's not any, anywhere near enough to cover the cost of those uh, medicines for poor people in terms of the amount of budget available for public health care. So most people are paying for that health care out of their pockets. They're paying for the medicines out of their pockets. And in many, many of the developing countries where we work, they represent just... They, the, the, this it represents, after food, the single greatest... Um, drain on, on, peop on poor people's um, budget, uh, you know, weekly budgets. And we see in many of our programs the kind of distressed sales that people make when grandma gets ill or when their son or daughter gets ill. People are, are, are selling their assets in order to buy the medicines in the hope that their, 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 their loved ones will recover. So it's very important the way in which we make that availability and that affordability. In terms of the research and development, 
We have we had a slide saying you know the science must be from from uh, from uh, Patrick saying the science must be linked to patient need. So the question is where is the patient, and who which of the patients are important? Because if all patients are important, the issue of patient, of patient need becomes much more an issue, not just for the drug companies, but also for, uh, for, for public bodies and, and national governments. But it's also one that's a major challenge for the research and development uh, of, those, of those companies. And in 2007, the pharmaceutical industry in, uh, invested in R&D for neglected diseases 7.3% of their total uh, budget. So it's a relatively small proportion of those that are going into the diseases that are most the biggest killers for, uh, for poorer people. It was $232 million as compared to $50 billion overall. And of course the critical reason for that, the main reason for that, uh, the, lack of re the, the lack of these suitable uh, drugs and the lack of R&D is in fact the market failure that has been generated by the intellectual property rules, and uh, in, the sense of, uh, in the sense of the companies are understandably driven by profit, and there simply isn't a profit where poor people are. So you invest the money where you can make the money, and therefore on, your three, uh, on the three circles that we saw, market size, in the sense of the return on your investment, has been massively predominant for most pharmaceutical com uh, companies over the, uh, over the last 10 years that we've certainly been working on these issues. Um, moving to intellectual property rules. Um, the global intellectual property regime has essentially failed the poor. It's failed them because it's failed to foster research and development in the, in the, in the, in the major killers of developing countries and uh, the adaptation of drugs to developing country settings. And it's also delayed competition. It's delayed competition from generic medicines, from cheaper genetic medicines, and that's meant essentially, as I said before, that many of those medicines have been restricted to the elites of developing countries because of the pricing policies of, of, uh, of pharmaceutical giants. And the whole issue of, therefore, evergreening the maintenance, the maintenance of these patents by small, insignificant changes, but which allow you to say, I need another 20 years on this medicine because I've made a small change in the molecule or in its preparation, and therefore you can give me another 20 years of intellectual property. You can see that that's become, why that's become such an important uh, point from Patrick's slide when he showed that the pipeline that even GSK has got with its massive investment renews only 60% of sales. So you can see the drive in the companies to maintain those, uh, those, uh, th those uh, patents for as long as they possibly can. Far better to, f to spend millions in a battle to maintain those patents than actually invest it in, in drug research in many conditions, if you look at it from a simple economic point of view. So the, that is why, for many people over the last 10 years, it's become obvious that the social contract has been broken. It's been broken on uh, the social contract of patents, which was supposed to ensure that there was new medicines uh, uh, available for the future at a reasonable uh, price. So just coming now to GSK, um, I think... First of all, we must recognise that GlaxoSmithKline have come an enormous way from when we started campaigning on this in 2001. In 2001, we couldn't believe uh, both the scandalous nature of, of the behaviour of some of the pharmaceuticals, including GSK, um, 
but also we couldn't believe our luck as a campaigning organisation. Can you imagine being Oxfam and hearing that a group of major pharmaceutical giants were actually going to take Nelson Mandela to court in South Africa, in South Africa, to make sure that there was no reduction in the international application or the application of international patent rules in South Africa, when South Africa was, as we know, facing a massive health emergency of HIV/AIDS. For a campaigner, that is like gold dust. <laughs> Unbelievable. At the same time, it's absolutely extraordinary and appalling. Now, the fact is that GSK, we chose to campaign on GSK um, back then as the single most important company we wanted to work on because they were showing some leadership. They were showing some leadership, in, as, as you saw, in, in terms of their philanthropy, in terms of many other areas. And what we desperately wanted to do was to break this boneheaded sector, and that's a word used by the Financial Times um, um, editorial, not mine, but this boneheaded sector, and try and break it so that there was at least a leader coming out. And I think, and that has happened slowly over, over time. But what we've seen now with uh, the, the latest announcement from the CEO is that there is a massive gap opened up between GSK and the rest of uh, the pharmaceutical industry. To be absolutely accurate, the cu I, can, I, can, I can confirm that, the, that GSK has cut prices to 50 least developed countries by, more than by, by uh, guaranteed more than 25% of the levels in the UK and the US, and that they, that they will seek to make drugs more available uh, in middle-income countries like Brazil and India at lower prices. Our response to that is, that is fantastic news. We want, of course a tiered pricing regime, a formal tiered pricing regime, not, not based on the largesse of a company, but a tiered pricing regime. India still has more people on less than a dollar a day than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa, than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. So simply saying, oh, this is a massive emerging market and they're all terribly rich and so on, India's completely changed. The fact is the great majority of Indians are still living in tremendous poverty. And if we are going to get the Indian government to do what it should do, in terms of its, the, 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 the health, public health provision, it really must, it's going to need the collaboration of GSK to do that. The second thing they've said is put any chemicals or processes over which they have intellectual properties rights that are relevant to finding drugs for neglected diseases into a patent pool so they can be explored by other researchers. And I think I'm just going to read from, uh, from Mr. Witte here. Our industry has treated intellectual property as if it is written in stone. Yet it is vital, yes it is vital, but intellectual property is part of a grand bargain with society. And I think GSK is trying to make that move now to make sure that that's, that's, that's happening. What of course we also need is the leadership by GSK to make sure that these kind of patent pools really work and that they are going out seeking partners for that, for that patent pool rather than passively waiting for them. The other area they've said is that they will reinvest 20% of the profits from least developed countries. I'm sounding like your PR money. Um, but we will reinvest 20% of, of, uh, of least developed country profits in hospitals and clinics. Our plea to GSK on this is that they make sure that they're going to invest that in the public health services of those, of those countries. Finding the best public provision and backing that best public provision. We've done a lot of research over time trying to find the best ways in which you can get pro-poor health delivery. And they all point to the fact that, that while there are many cases where public health provision is appalling, 
the only places where it really works is where a government has made a decision to make sure that, that that public health provision is available in poor countries. So we really hope it's not going to be this island approach, providing islands of, of, of excellent health care in, in an ocean of, of, uh, of, of poverty. And then also... Uh, calls on the, the GSK has uh, said it will call on the rest of, far, of the pharma uh, sector to lead. And that needs to be in patent pools, it needs to be in tiered pricing, and it also needs to be in, on the basis of philanthropy driven by need more than by PR. I'll finish now just to say that we think that they've made big steps forward. There's still m m more things that GSK can do. You wouldn't expect me to say anything less. Let's celebrate the extraordinary shift that there's been in the market leader, and why have they done it? They've done it because of the moral purpose of the leadership, and that's terribly important to recognise, that companies, along with some governments, can act with a moral purpose. In our days of great, cynical, uh, of great cynicism, it's important to recognise that there can be moral purpose. Secondly, um, it's also important to note that there have been many other people who have acted with moral purpose. The generics companies, and particularly CIPLA, acted with moral purpose when it was threatened even by the US government, and the Indian government was threatened by the US government regarding the manufacture of antiretrovirals. They acted with a moral purpose and made sure that those antiretrovirals were available, which saw the price of medicines drop from $10,000 per person per year in, in 2001. Within two years, they dropped to less than 100 dollars per person per year in, in, in Africa. So th there's many that act with a moral purpose, but GSK has stood out um, uh, in these last few years. They've also, they've also done it because they know that they must have that license to operate that Patrick spoke about. They're also doing it because emerging markets are very important to them, and they're going to be increasingly important, and they've got to build their status and, their respect, uh, and, the, and the respect for their brands in those places. To quote uh, Mr. Whitty again, we do not want to be seen as just a Western company in, in Brazil and India, a tourist, if you will. We want to be a local company with a commitment to addressing specific healthcare needs of, of, countries, of the countries we operate in. We seek partnerships. The partnerships will tie us in much more closely to the country we operate in, giving us a, giving us a stake in its economic and social development. That is how it should be. We would say here, here to that, and let's make sure we're doing the same in, in, in low-income countries as well. Thank you.